0: Welcome to another episode of Theater Reviews from My Seat. This podcast is based on my website and blog. My main goal is to speak about my theater-going experiences without plot spoilers. You should get a sense of what a particular show is about and why I do or do not recommend it. I am New York City-based, but often review productions in other cities. Another goal of my blog and this podcast is to share my passion for live theater and hopefully inspire you to check out a play, a musical, or a theater company you may not have known about. For me, this month was all about off- and off-off Broadway shows. And um, I'm going to start with and end with three of them by Mack Wellman. The Flea Theater is doing a festival of his works, uh, five of them actually, and three of them I've got to see this month and I'm scheduled to see the next two in October. Um, So I'll start with those and end with one. And then in between that, there will be a whole bunch of plays and some musicals to talk about. I'll add a few tips here and there, and also talk about the upcoming fall Broadway schedule. The month of October is packed with new openings, and we're going to tell you about those and look forward to them as well. As always... You could visit the website for up-to-date or archived posts at www.theaterreviewsfrommyseat.com. In addition, you can register to receive emails for all new posts as they are added. Now let's get started. Let's begin at the Flea Theater and the plays Bad Penny and Sincerity Forever by Mac Wellman. Here's a quote. I do not feel compelled, by reason, to accept this theory of evolution, nor the periodic table of elements, nor the theory of global warming, nor the supposed crimes against the Jews attributed to one Rudolf Hitler. Bad Penny and Sincerity Forever are MacWellman plays originally staged in 1989 and 1990. Absolutely nothing is dated or stale, in his evisceration and condemnation of America and its littleness and stupidity and bitterness and rage and greed. Bad Penny is the first production performed in the new outside venue of Pete's Courtyard at the Flea Theater. I took my seat at the picnic table. There were chairs, blankets, and mats. The audience is an intimately sized two dozen. The cast trickles in. Some lightly humorous cornhole is played. Then woman number one begins ruminating on the nature of the sky. Is it one big fake? One great big vast optical illusion? Before the play begins, man number one enters, carrying a tire and noticeably bearing an unseen weight on his shoulders. He's an ex-football jock from Big Ugly Montana, whose car is broken down. He is crossing the park in search of a repair shop. He works at a nuclear toxic waste site. He spars with woman number one. Others jump in on the easy, judgmental bandwagon. He's a lazy good-for-nothing. I mean, look at that look on his face. 30 years later, the American pastime of criticizing others with little knowledge is now an art form practiced by Facebook ranters quick-thumbed tweeters and leaders of the free world another woman denounces mr minder of other people's beeswax later she comments that you can just tell by looking at her that she is a floozy or homeless or damaged goods the toxicity of the human race is the thread running through this rambling play surrealism and absurdity seem to be the intention but much of the performance is flat and lacking depth. As man number one, Joseph Huffman develops a fully fleshed-out persona. His dejected all-American hangs on to the belief that nobody but fools believe in anything but power, money, muscle, and good old-fashioned American cheese. There are many witty lines and ripe targets splattered throughout Bad Penny. This production, however is like watching an acting exercise of widely varying quality. A retrospective of Mr. Melman's work is being staged at Flea, as I mentioned, which is a company he co-founded. Later that same evening, I sat down to watch Sincerity Forever, which was originally dedicated to Senator Jesse Helms, quote, for the fine job you are doing of destroying civil liberties in these states, unquote. If Bad Penny is the intellectually amusing but ultimately bland appetizer, Sincerity Forever is the juicy entree, medium-rare, bloody, succulent, and hilarious. When this play opens, Judy asks, Molly, do you know why God created the world the way he did? So complicated, I mean. Both are wearing their KKK garb. Molly doesn't care that she knows nothing. The most important thing is not what you know, but whether you're sincere or not. Seven sincere young people who are members of the Invisible Nation are skewered for their vapidity and ignorance. Directed by Dina Vavsi, the entire ensemble nails the perfect tone for this comedic tirade. Mr. Wellman is not subtle when he satirizes bigoted white kids. Two young men lift their hoods to reveal inner thoughts, if you can actually call them thinkers. I, too, may be as dumb as a post and unclear about the multiplication table, the boundaries of more than half-dozen states, and unable to repair my own toilet, but damn it, Hank, if the English language was good enough for Jesus H. Christ. I laughed out loud frequently. Nothing I heard seemed remotely dated, sadly. Two furballs from the tribes of Belial and Abaddon throw in their two cents. Belial is the Hebrew and then later Christian personification of the devil. Abaddon is the realm of the dead. These characters are the punkish gothic kids who are disgusted by these, quote, smarmy goody two-shoes and their chintzy cheesy boring mediocrity. The question lingers. What exactly is good and right? If God does exist, what would she think? Thankfully, we do not have to guess. Jesus H. Christ shows up sporadically in the form of an African-American woman. She stands up, screams, and condemns her misguided flock of hypocrites in a blistering monologue. In 1990, Mr. Wellman wrote this line for Jesus. I've got nothing to say to you, America both barrels right between the eyes. The rage is palpable, effective, and thrillingly theatrical. Would Jesus have any different view today about a land of unceasing gun violence, brown-skinned child abuse, and abject derision of any moral code? Not every moment in sincerity forever swings a sledgehammer. When the righteous Thor takes a pause, we see these misguided youth growing up Worrying about dating and the meaning of life. That ordinariness is what makes Sincerity Forever so very real, if grotesquely exaggerated and lampooned for effect. So very real, so very funny, so very scary, and yes, so very disheartening. I'm glad I saw both of MacMoman's works revived on the same evening and now. America is nothing if not a country overwhelmingly draped in and hideously proud of false sincerity. Find a bad penny and pick it up? Dot, dot, dot. The next play I'd like to talk about actually traveled to New York from Akron, Ohio, and was presented by the None Too Fragile Theater Company. The title, Boogeyman. Post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, is the mental health condition explored in D.C. Fiddler's play, Boogie Ban. Lieutenant Colonel Lawrence Kaplan is a veteran of the Vietnam War. He now works for the military, evaluating soldiers and their emotional fitness. Specialist Jason Winsky is his newest charge, a man recently returned from Afghanistan. This two-character play sets up a stimulating juxtaposition of the experience of war and its impact on men from different eras. Kaplan is just one week from retirement. Boxes are beginning to be filled with his books. His wife is nagging him on the phone to come home and go sailing. Winsky is going to be his last patient. Their meetings will proceed from vaguely innocuous and sometimes snarky chatter to a deeply riveting meditation on what our brave soldiers have and continue to endure. This playwright has over four decades of clinical psychiatry and psychology expertise. The story is definitely written to be therapeutically redemptive for those individuals and their families who may have endured similar scarring journeys. We know how to send our young to war. We know to welcome them back with parades, garlands, and trumpets. We have never known how to bring home their hearts and souls. David Peacock portrays the older Kaplan. Wiser from age and experience, he understands the military is where. Mature farts exploit immature farts. Living and breathing a call to serve, his son followed in his footsteps and died. The American flag box sits prominently on a shelf. Kaplan is the stiff upper lip type but tinged with the weariness of a man who has seen enough suffering in his lifetime. He heals others while quietly still healing himself. Specialist Winsky is played by Travis Tefner. There is a casualness to this performance that is endearingly relaxed and original. The role could easily be hard-nosed, defensive, and off-putting, especially at first the character is not an amalgam of PTSD stories previously chronicled elsewhere. Instead, this unique individual is filled with his own interesting, personalized details, such as the T-Rex. As you would expect, Winsky's protective emotional battle armor will eventually reveal a complicated core. His troubled mother gave birth to her son at the age of 14, but abandoned him to be raised by his grandmother the structure of the Army as a way out and forward is clear. Over the course of nearly two hours, Boogie Band will alternate between the evaluation sessions and ruminations from the Elder Kaplan. There are multiple sections which do seem long and meandering. The payoff in the last 30 minutes, however, is worth the investment. What are this young soldier's nightmares all about? Director Sean Derry guided a powerful finale filled with heightened dramatic tension which hits hard and then sustains its compelling focus. There is a convenient coincidence introduced near the end of the play, which feels forced and unnecessary in order to have both men provide solace to each other. However, The multi-generational framework and the ability to think about right and wrong with the wisdom of experience hits the mark and is effective. This play has a soul. D.C. Fiddler's boogie ban does contain some broad commentary about the long-lasting damage inflicted upon our American troops. Since we are a country always at war now, his heartfelt plea for greater understanding, empathy, And treatment is critically important. If this play can provide a beacon for healing to anyone in need, then this important mission will have been accomplished. Boogie Band was presented by the None Too Fragile Theater Company based in Akron, Ohio, and was performed at the 13th Street Repertory Theater. The next play I'd like to talk about is I Never Sang for My Father. Relationships with one's parents are often mined for drama and comedy. The Thanksgiving table can sometimes seem like immersive live theater. Once in a while, a playwright uses his personal experience to explore his own feelings. Robert Anderson does that in his deeply introspective, I never sang for my father. Son Gene is picking up his parents from the train in New York City as the play opens. Their snowbird months are over, and it's time to return to Westchester. Mom is suffering from cancer, heart attacks, and arthritis. She seems to be a cheerful soul. Dad is a retired brigadier general who only watches westerns on television. He has a nagging cough but will not see a doctor. Self-absorption fuels his interactions with family and strangers. Tom and Margaret are fairly ordinary parental types. She is kind and defers to her husband. When he banned their daughter for marrying a Jewish man, she acquiesced. His philosophy is staunchly mid-century white American male. Any man with a sound body can achieve whatever he wants within reason. The first argument is between father and son concerning the route to drive home. Even though we've seen these people before, on stage and off, They are defined individuals and believably developed. The audience bonded with them early. Jokes about driver's licenses and handkerchiefs elicited knowing laughs of recognition. With a simple stage of black boxes, director Richard Holler creates smooth transitions, notably from the backyard garden to Schraff's restaurant. After a fight over who is paying for dinner, Jean implores Dad not to order dinner based upon the lowest-priced option. We have seen and heard all of this before, so what makes this play needed? Mr. Anderson is writing from a very personal space. The mood is melancholy. The pace is very measured. The result is a production that feels excruciatingly long. Details are repeated over and over throughout the play. Some are critical to the plot, such as Dad's narcissistic obsession with telling his life story to anyone who will listen. Others just slow down the momentum, like references to Westerns and the father's pained relationship with Gene's grandfather. The tone feels intentional and intimately personal. The story is not incredibly unique, so the oft-repeated points become barriers to absorbing the emotions of the play. Instead, the audience is enduring a marathon of familial analysis. Mr. Anderson's writing contained some very thoughtful observations. One of my favorites was from Mom. What a shame children cannot see their parents when they are young and courting. Many of the scenes are well done. The acting is good, despite fairly generic characters and situations. The role of Gene flips repeatedly between narrator and son. Portrayed by David Lee, the effect is a clinical study rather than an emotional journey. Whether or not intended, the result is to create distance between the viewer and the family. As Jean's parents, Michael S. Horowitz and Georgia Buchanan have created nicely shaded portrayals of elderly parents in decline. The highs and lows of a full life lived are etched in their words and mannerisms. Another highlight was the assorted characters played by Elizabeth Mayle in supporting roles. Different accents were employed and they were immensely fun to watch. That's a good thing and a bad thing. I thoroughly enjoyed her interpretations as the core drama was plodding along. I never sang for my father is clearly a heartfelt meditation of a son's coming to terms with distant relationship he had with an overbearing, selfish, wildly successful father. The average theater goer, however, will not have enough patience to experience this journey, despite its realness and importance to the author. I never sang for my father was performed at the Chain Theater and off Off-Broadway House. Next up, Bad News! Exclamation point. I was there, dot dot dot. Arriving at New York University's Skirball Center, I was handed two green cards. The Oedipus card contained this quote from Sophocles. How dreadful the knowledge of the truth can be when there's no help in truth. Heading down the stairs into the waiting lobby, the walls were adorned with information about the Greeks and current headlines about various disasters. So begins the site-specific experience, appropriately titled, Bad News! I Was There! Eight actors begin this piece on the stairs above the crowd. They introduce the players of Athens. We hear no greatness comes without disaster. Audience guides, who double as the chorus, split the groups by color. There are four separate areas where messengers from classical drama share shocking stories from the ancient world. The famous tales of madness, murder, warfare, and infanticide are performed from the works of Aeschylus, Euripides, Sophocles, Racine, and Brecht. The monologues are spoken and sung in English, with a handful of other languages thrown in occasionally. Presumably, this is meant to underscore the universal nature of the human condition. In certain sections, there is a contemporary feel rather than a more traditional classical presentation. When it is announced that Orestes is dead, the next line is, Fake news! That is followed by misinformation about one of our current presidential candidates. AOC opposes daylight savings times because it hastens climate change. From each double monologue, the group is escorted to the next location with a song. Mine was Paris, Priam, Hector, Hecuba, repeated over and over. It took days before that melody could leave my head. All of this bad news is punctuated with, I was there and I will tell you everything. Creator and director Joanne Akalaitis is drawing parallels between these horrific histories to our current obsession with the first-person narration of bad news. My last group section was Medea and Thiestes, which hilariously began with Jenny Aikida holding something which could easily represent a book report. She mischievously looks up at us and promises, Medea, the high points. When you hear the line, passion is stronger than reason, it is up to each person to interpret the connection to current events. In the final part, all of the audience comes together to see citizens waiting for the return of their men from war. Never in the history of the world did so many men die on the same day. Fake news now. The human race has certainly bettered the death count in modern times. Bad news I was there is more interesting than successful as a piece of theater. The group transitions were slightly bumbling. Companies like Third Rail Projects have memorably orchestrated how intriguing and mystical those movements can be as part of an entire experience. All the individual performances were good, however, It was certainly curious hearing other stories simultaneously occurring in the background while listening to the section you were in. Therein lies the problem, a lack of focus. Perhaps that is commentary on modern times as well. I've got three productions from the Theater for the New City this month to talk to you about. The first one is a new musical titled Revolutionary. With the not-so-faint wisps of fascism blowing all around the world today, artists seem compelled to paint the future. Prasad Paul Duffy has written and directed Revolutionary, with Theo Grace composing the score and lyrics. The show has been selected as part of Theatre for the New City's Dream Up Festival. Pursuing new works presented in non-traditional ways, the festival aims to push ideas forward and encourage experimentation. An acoustic musical, described as a work in progress, revolutionary is set in New York City in the not-so-distant future. The rights and privileges of citizens have been taken away. Artificial intelligence and cyber automation have replaced millions of workers. Government has disabled the Internet. People are being microchipped. In this bleak environment, a group of homeless kids struggle to survive. Bethany is a whore for her pimp boyfriend, Alex. He tells her, I really need to elevate right now. She got double paid today, so she's got the vape. He is planning a revolution. It's all in the manifesto I've been writing. Without a hint of irony, she replies, great. In the meantime, sing me a song. Transitions from dialogue to songs in this musical can be awkward. Gabriel opens the show. He's a long-haired drifter type, strumming his guitar and crooning about whispering winds. We meet Wolf and Jedi, who will soon be his best friends on this journey. He is introduced to Maya, an amazing psychic who reads tarot cards and can channel Bob Marley. Maya is transgender and sings, Open Human Heart. The others join in, but I cannot explain why. Moments, which first appear to be solos, often morph into unexplained group numbers. The psychology of blind following? Hmm. A RoboCop arrives announcing that it's 10 minutes to curfew. James McGonagall is inspired in this very small role with jerky physicality and a primitive computerized voice. His moments are a tad silly in an engaging way. Soon, Maya is dragged off to a FEMA camp and tortured. In this future, it certainly pays to be male. The only young woman is a prostitute, and the only trans person is beaten up. Everyone heads to the Source Center, which is ground zero for the revolution. Mother figure Maitreya bellows. We are revolutionaries of the new paradigm. In the song Common Design, she sings, These family lines go farther than we know beyond ancient future times, and what we know are stories and signs, blank puzzle pieces and hand-me-down minds. The revolution will be achieved through mental means. Some think it's a cult. Others want to give it a try to see if they can utilize the crystal skull to escape the 3D material world and enter the 5D spiritual world. A bit of meditation is the best way to awaken the fifth dimension, the oneness of unity consciousness. This is a thing. When I searched the internet, I saw a hyperlink to read more about the galactic photon belt. Is revolutionary attempting to be another dawning of the age of Aquarius? You say you want a revolution. Well, you know, we all want to change the world. Occasionally, a spoken line sparks a hint of something other than complete unquestioning sincerity for this metaphysical dreamscape. Telepathy is like mental texting. Revolutionary has romantic subplots and a few genuine surprises to keep things interesting. The cast does a very respectable job keeping the story moving along and providing chemistry to their underdeveloped relationships. The acoustical idea in the creation of this show feels right. The ultimate goal for this musical seems to be new-agey reinvention of a more enlightened tomorrow. All humans will find happiness, peace, and love. We are spirits in the material world. The pop song references are endless. As this show develops further, more thoughts should go into connecting characters with the songs and their meanings. Every character should be able to answer the question, Why am I singing this? Quote, When I see myself reflected in your eyes, the mystery collides and destiny redefines. When that song finishes, Wolf says what well, perhaps we are thinking. Okay, I've had enough of this shit. Let's go. Will the whole groovy gang eventually go 5D? love-conquer-all? Revolutionary is very seriously committed to its mystical vision. My eyes, regrettably, were wearing the wrong glasses. Now we'll take a short break and talk about a couple of openings on Broadway this month. The first is a play by Robert Schenken. It's called The Great Society. It's actually his second play about President Lyndon Johnson following his study of him back in 2014 in the Tony-winning All the Way. The next opening will be a show called Freestyle Love Supreme. This one began its life at Wesleyan University as a hip-hop comedy troupe. It was originally conceived by the now-famous Lin-Manuel Miranda and director Thomas kale It successfully had an off-Broadway revival last winter and is now moving uptown to Broadway. Some nights it will actually have performances at 10 p.m. I was actually scheduled to see The Great Society already, but a very, very, very late plane arrival uh, forced me to give tickets to a friend who had very positive things to say about it, so I'm looking forward to catching that one soon. Our next play, The Chaos Theory of Now, is the second one this month performed at the Theater for the New City. When I sat down to see the chaos theory of now, I found the pre-show music selections to be quirky. Barbara Mandrell's I Was Country When Country Wasn't Cool. Thomas Dolby's She Blinded Me With Science. Katie Lang's Constant Craving. Turns out the song choices were spot on. The author and performer Jennifer Joy Polacek grew up on a farm before becoming a science nerd and a lesbian. Her play uses the fascinating idea of taking chaos theory to help explain what is happening in America today. Like many of us, she is struggling to grasp how people can see the world so differently. My family are far-right Republican, fundamentalist Christian, climate change-denying, Trump-voting creationists. She asks out loud, how did that happen? Miss Polashek will take us on several journeys. Widow Joyce is struggling to save the Nebraska family farm and owns a bookstore called Isaiah 4030 Books and Gifts. Lesbian politician Jenny is running for office in a deeply religious Minnesota district. Her daughter Ashley is the poster child for Antifa. Bethany lives in Atlanta persevering through an unhappy marriage while homeschooling four children. In addition to these characters, Miss Polachek acts as the narrator. Her thought experiment is allowed to blossom from engaging individualized stories to broader perspectives and analysis. Her siblings all went to the same schools. How did I end up loving science when most of my family became committed fundamentalists? How can chaos theory explain this? Politician Jenny is a moderate Democrat who believes in cutting government waste, but also taking care of the less fortunate. She's campaigning in a place where farming is a pre-existing condition. Humorous little zingers pepper this play and are endearing. Her daughter screams her rage and calls the president a pervy 70-year-old. That's the clean version. The playwright figured out she was a lesbian in college. I met Dee, an androgynous heartthrob with a tragic past. She uses characters to demonstrate alternative points of view, but does not mock them. The outrage of youth is tempered by the rest of the women who are matured, but seemingly hardened into their beliefs. Homeschooling mom Bethany is sure end of times is coming, and she is preparing her family. These vignettes are expanded into commentary. What is the difference between a public school education and a homeschooled childhood? Public school is filled with mixing experiences, different ideas, and random events. The home environment is much more controllable and therefore structurally more linear. With the advent of computers, chaos theory was exploding the notions of complex systems. They are nonlinear, dynamic, and full of contradictions. Many people need linearity, she proposes. The chaos theory of now occasionally packages its politics into simplistic liberal treatises. Some of the speeches are less compelling than the storytelling and analytical concepts. She asks us to consider are immigrants stealing our jobs, or is it robots? In our complicated world, the answer cannot simply be A or B. Corporate greed, slave wages overseas, changes in work ethic, and so on. The culprits are many and labyrinthine. Spontaneous reorganization can happen when destabilizing elements are added into complex systems. Ms. Bolichek ponders with us. What new country will come out of these tumultuous times? What is going to emerge from this place of fear and anger? How nice to have a personal memoir performed with exuberance and joy to help us shed some light on our world today. The chaos of now is unique, personal, and a very rewarding experience. My last and final visit with the Theatre for the New City this month is a musical. The title No-Brainer, or The Solution to Parasites. Over six weekends in August and September, the Theater for the New City is presenting a free original musical, No-Brainer, or The Solution to Parasites. The artwork features an image of a man with orange hair. Guessing the main topic? No-brainer! Artistic director Crystal Field wrote the book lyrics and directed this roaring musical that puts a New York social worker against a dictator consumed by parasites this original show has been composed and arranged by Joseph Vernon banks these artists are taking theater directly to the people and for free to East 10th Street to the Coney Island boardwalk to Jackie Robinson Park My visit was to Washington Square Park. A stage is set up with backdrops lined up on the side with a band nearby. This show is staged in all five boroughs of New York City. A social services provider has to find housing for people where there ain't no housing to find. He is fighting for people, families facing eviction, children in temporary housing, and immigrants struggling for citizenship. In the opening number, census song. We hear from a nurse from Bensonhurst, a cab driver, a barber from Harlem, and others. This is a musical for the people meant to be approachable and universal. This show happens to be about, quote, a raging, somewhat drunk real estate magnet from a TV reality show. He bellows, go back where you came from so we can reign forever. The political lines are drawn and quartered. The underworld keepers of the pot warn about a cesspool filled with the catastrophe of industry. In this secret Hades-like area, the gods cleanse a nation's soul in a cauldron by boiling out history's tragic missteps, namely genocide, slavery, and war. They warn, don't drink a cup of this. The future leader of the world let's call him Donald, gulps down the bubbling brew which is full of parasites. His brain directs him to seek the highest office in the land. Our social worker accepts the challenge to save the world from this grandiose charlatan. The politics are clear and broadly funny. Even the border wall plays a part in this roasting. Will the evil despot be condemned to the cauldron of historical garbage? You know the answer. At the end of this good-intentioned musical meant to engage every person in the crowd, the people dance. Brother and sisterhood once again save the day. Imagine a theater company creating a show meant to engage our citizens about current events. Imagine bringing the story to them in multiple neighborhoods throughout the city. Can there be any more exciting way to connect with the masses, tell a story, and teach a few fun facts? Here's a lesson shared to anyone who will listen. If ICE comes to your door, they have to produce a warrant. Oh, and it needs to be signed by a judge. That's not a warning to me, but maybe it is very, very relevant to someone sitting in and enjoying some free entertainment. This show is professionally presented on a budget with great backdrops and a moving panorama. The work put into the visuals is both enchanting and delightful. Amidst all of this fun and sarcastic frivolity, tourists and various New Yorkers walk past the performance. Some focus and take pictures. Others are oblivious. Kind of a reflection of our times. The presidential figure shouts, I tried everything! Russia! Sanctions! Tariffs! I've got to win! I need a war! Here's a show for those who need a laugh to heal. That this show is a free expression of of artistic protest performed outside for anyone to hear makes this endeavor worth a listen. Get into the target audience's head and really think about what the creators are sharing and teaching. Here's a quick tip for you. I saw a musical last fall called Renaissance, off-Broadway produced by the Transport Group. Carmel Dean composed a score putting Edna St. Vincent Millay's words to her music Dick Scanlon wrote the book, and they created a show about Edna St. Vincent Millay, her poetry, and her life, and it was a spectacularly fine effort. I've been listening to the cast album recently, and it is really worth a listen if you've never heard of the show or never heard the score before. The music is beautiful, and the poetry is extraordinary. And as a side fun fact... Hannah Corneau, who starred at Edna St. Vincent Millay last fall, is currently playing Elphaba in the musical Wicked on Broadway. She's terrific in that show. I'm sure she's great in Wicked, and the music is really worth a listen. Fans of Broadway cast albums and show scores that are really, really beautiful should seek out Renaissance. Now I'd like to talk to you about a play which came across the pond Luckily and happily for all of us to enjoy the title Decky Does a Bronco. When you are a very lucky theater goer, a play can transport you to a different time and place and age. Decky Does a Bronco is one such experience. A heavy metal playground swing set is placed on a rage stage of green carpeting. On the walls there are chalk drawings. You can see and more importantly, feel the surrounding Scottish neighborhoods in the distance. The scenic designer is Diggle, who did very memorable work last year at the Tank with Red Emma and the Mad Monk. Aidan Marshall's exceptional lighting design transports this tale back to a time when the summer days of young boys consisted of horseplay and vivid imaginations. The lights may change color and freeze a moment for emphasis. David narrates his story of five young boys in 1983. He describes himself as a pathological reminiscer. This memoir as a play effectively tells the story of one summer which remains an unforgettable, unforgivable, and unlucky moment in life. That's what happens when you look back with an adult frame on things. David is joined by O'Neill, Barry, Chrissy, and the titular Decky, for daily fun at this particular playground. The swing set challenge of Bronco fills in the gap between Star Wars and football. Imagine yourself at nine years old, standing on a swing in the park. Gaining momentum, you use gravity to make the swing go higher and higher. High enough so that you can use one foot to coerce the swing to fly over the bar while you jump off. A successful Bronco completes the revolution without any personal injury. The sound effect from the heavy change punctuates the victory. The trick is a dangerous combination of vandalism and sport, and a social benchmark for the gang. On the evening I saw Decky does a Bronco, there was even a spectacular double performed to excited applause and an obviously proud cast. David tells the story of these boys and their childhood exploits in the park. Chrissy and Decky are best friends who are always fighting and competing. They have outsized fantasies and the energy of valiant warriors. Barry spends the summer with his grandmother, biking to this park and trying to break his own record on each trip. An older outsider, named O'Neill, he's 13, often stops by. He is... Quote, one of those naturally cool people with amazing sporting ability. He can Bronco for days. Scenes with these five kids playing and horsing around are impressively realistic and will spark memories of youth, creativity, freedom, and competitiveness. All of the adult actors have beautifully inhabited a detailed childlike persona. The situations and assorted hijinks are vividly staged by director Ethan Nienaber. Decky is the smaller boy, and he has less skill in completing a Bronco. Narrator David fondly recalls this particular summer and then tries to make sense of a tragic event which is hinted at from the beginning of this exceptionally fine play. There may be a few seconds of heavy-handedness in the script towards the end. Do nine-year-old boys think and speak that way? The utterly complete capturing of youthful zeal is what makes Decky Does a Bronco so thrillingly entertaining. David notes that this time is prior to his sarcastic period. Before I knew it, I was being ironic in the morning. Amidst all of the zany fun, a specific incident occurs. Who is to blame? How does it impact such young lives? How does the passage of time help to heal deep sorrow? Do we move on with life? Are we forever changed? Run to see Decky Does a Bronco. Anywhere it's played. All five actors were perfect in memorably written roles. Douglas Maxwell's excellent play is wildly fun and deadly serious, just like life. We've all said things that we regret at one point or another. Here's a chance to listen to a playwright come to terms with that. I was devastated. Bravo. My next off-Broadway play was at Playwrights Horizons. It's called Wives. Jacqueline Backhouse has written Wives as a proudly feminist comedic reprimand which rails against patriarchal history. This wildly uneven and ultimately unsatisfying short work ponders the women who had to sit on the sidelines of their husbands. After a few laughs, there is an epiphany of sorts which, like the universe, contains a lot of dead space. This play contains four sections which are unconnected, except thematically. Miss Bockhaus uses various errors to show disgruntled yet empowered women rising up against their tormentors, or buffoons, depending on the vignette. The lack of any continuing narrative isn't really the problem, It's just a bit of clowning around before a bludgeon is used to mystically transcend space and time. The first scene involves the French monarch Henry II, wife Catherine de' Medici, and his mistress. Catherine says to him, You fake-ass bitch! The language is vigorously contemporary and does produce laughs. We've all seen countless historical pieces where wives of these periods knew about their husbands' infidelities this part felt like the appetizer to something bigger and better. The entree portion of wives is definitely the second section. The widows of Ernest Hemingway get together upon his death. All are dressed in black. They reminisce and drink a bunch of booze. A large marlin prop lambastes the trophy hunting of the alpha male stereotype. When dessert arrives, it appears in the form of India when they were subjugated to the British. There's a Maharaja and his wife. The target here, however, is the oppressive British male and his ineffective bumbling. The patriarchy is bad, message, is expanded to colonialism. That's not a bad idea, just a very underdeveloped one. Moving on quickly to after-dinner drinks is when the ship steers violently off course. At Oxbridge University, a coven of academic witches have a club. A portrait of Virginia Woolf is on the wall. Eventually, there will be a transcendental connection with the universe, which can be described as both a feminist rallying cry and a speechifying mess. Maybe the after-dinner drinks were eschewed for edibles in a legalized marijuana state? All of this silly gobbledygook is handsomely staged by director Margot Bordelon from last year's equally unremarkable Eddie and Dave. The pace is frantic as the material requires. All four actors do solid work in multiple roles, especially Adina Verson. She memorably opens the play as a 16th century chef in the mold of Julia Child. There are chuckles to be had while enduring wives. Unlike Miss Backhouse's truly inspired Men on Boat's play, however, there's nothing meaningful to absorb. In that play, an 1869 expedition down the Colorado River was reenacted by a female cast. That commentary on male bravado and aggressive masculinity was very effective. Wives aspires to be a genre-busting amorphous piece of theater. Unfortunately, This frequently boring amusement is stuck on the corner of incomplete and forgettable. Wives is running through early October at Playwrights Horizons. A quick break in the action for more discussion on the openings coming to Broadway this month. The one I'm probably most excited about is Slave Play. I missed it off Broadway earlier in the year, and I heard it's great. And I'm very much looking forward to that one. I think I'm seeing that one in a couple weeks. Tracy Letts' new play is coming from Steppenwolf, and it's called Linda Vista, and it's going to be at the Second Stage Theater's Broadway house, the Hayes Theater. And there's going to be a revival of Tennessee Williams' The Rose Tattoo with the always reliably excellent Marissa Tomei. Now I'd like to tell you about a play that was performed off-Broadway at Second Stage Theater. It was called Make-Believe. If I had to do it all over again, I never would have had children. That line is not from playwright Bess Wall's Make-Believe. That chestnut is from an oft-repeated refrain from my mother. This play explores similarly gloomy relationships between children and parents in a structurally interesting way. David Zinn's impressive stage set is an attic playground. Up in this world where the children convene after school, is a playhouse, a plastic kitchen set, a table and chairs, toys, and storage boxes. This play is set both in the 1980s and the present day. When taking your seat, the soundtrack includes The Police's Spirits in the Material World and Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark's Enola Gay. Young Addie is pretending to be mommy with her Cabbage Patch doll. The four children of this household have defined roles. When young Chris comes home, he's taunting studious Kate, who chides him for making a ruckus. Eventually, they slip into family play and pretend to have dinner. Kate will scream, Now come on before it gets cold! Staring at the meatloaf, Chris barks, What the hell is this? Where are their parents? Chris is mad that there was no snack on the table when he got home. The phone rings and the children listen through the floor. That is the connection to the outside world for them and us. The answering machine picks up. Over time, the friction in this household will become even clearer. Meanwhile, the children reenact the behaviors they witness, including the pretend chugging of wine. Make-believe is certainly funny, and for many of us, recognizable. What makes this story so tantalizing are the layers of heartbreak which peek through the children's personalities. Kate writes a letter to Princess Grace of Monaco. It has come to my attention that I may be your child. Funny, yes. Tinged with sadness, most definitely. The story evolves to the current day, and mysteries will be dealt with at a family reunion of sorts. Miss Wool's dialogue includes a hopeful thought. This is just childhood. We're not even going to remember most of this stuff. As you might expect, that's not entirely accurate. All of the kids had their own coping mechanisms in their youth. Young Carl did not talk and pretended to be a dog. The reunion brings adults together who are still coping with unforgotten memories and disappointments. Michael Greif has nicely directed this ensemble. The children are equally natural and exaggerated in their depiction of their world. The adults feel like extensions of their younger personas. This short play meanders and unravels in a casual and very effective way. By the end, there's a completeness to the journey, funny and sad, thoughtful and angry. Most importantly, so very real and frankly dispiriting. Make Believe is a strong piece of theater. My favorite performance was from the older Addie played by Susanna Flood. That's unfair to say because parents are not supposed to pick favorites, especially in a group this endearing and accomplished. Not for nothing, this play reinforces that parents are not perfect. I saw Best Wall's exceptional hit play Small Mouth Sounds at Ars Nova in 2015. That memorable journey involved a silent retreat in which all the characters on stage did not speak. The precise facial and body language conveyed their personal angst. The audience was trusted to interpret and fill in the details. Make-believe is similarly thoughtful. From my seat, I'd note that was also dismaying and so very true to life. Although the run for Make-Believe has ended, I fully expect regional theater companies will be pouncing on this one for future seasons productions. Now let's take a journey downtown to Novenas for a Lost Hospital, presented by Rattlestick Theater. Good intentions and sad realities come into focus in the telling of the demise of the Greenwich Village Institution St. Vincent's Hospital. A question is posed. How do we hold a memory when all of the bricks are gone? Novenas for a Lost Hospital mashes up 160 years of vivid life serving a community from the cholera epidemic of 1849 to the HIV-AIDS crisis and 9-11. Elizabeth Ann Seton was the first American canonized by the Roman Catholic Church. She created the first parochial girls' school and founded the Sisters of Charity. From that order, four nuns from Maryland arrived in New York to start an orphanage. A hospital to serve the poor followed with 30 beds. From those humble beginnings grew a major city hospital. One of the nine novenas contained in this remembrance is The Beauty of Chaos. One neighborhood resident fondly remembers St. Vincent's Emergency Room. That's where you go when you need a big dose of mayhem. She's played by Kelly McAndrew, a standout in multiple roles amidst a strong cast of actors. This hospital served everyone regardless of religion and ability to pay. In our current political climate, many of our elected leaders and corporations fight to reduce providing health care to its people. This history is definitely worth reflecting on. Rather than the Sisters of Charity, Today we have the land of the $100 million health insurance CEO. The structure of this play is an interconnecting fantasy of assorted doctors, nurses, and patients from various ages of the hospital's existence. Mother Seaton was my favorite hallucination, says an AIDS patient who survived the plague. His choreographer boyfriend did not, noting everyone is getting better but me. All of the characters from different eras pop in and out to shed light on this hospital's history while also commenting on societal injustices. Pierre Toussaint is another historical figure who helps frame the period. He was a slave from Haiti brought to New York. Eventually freed, he became a leading black New Yorker who contributed and raised funds to help build St. Patrick's Cathedral. He was the first layperson buried in the crypt below the main altar. In 1996, the church declared him venerable, a major step toward becoming a saint. Helping to grow the tax-free, financially lucrative business of religion might be the sarcastic, if likely accurate, interpretation. But I digress. Written by Cousy Cram, Novenas for a Lost Hospital similarly digresses and quite often. Racism and genocide are addressed. Slaves laid the bricks in this area for land stolen from the Indians. On the realities of healthcare, sometimes Humpty Dumpty can't be put back together again. Science and religion are uneasy bedfellows. It's not like the Catholic Church is the only sexist institution. There are frequent jabs at a misguided America throughout. With bipartisan neglect, We bail out banks, but not hospitals. The rebukes are sharp and sometimes very on point. Late-stage capitalism will literally kill us all. When Susan Sarandon is rebuffed twice for her comments about not taking her kids to St. Vincent's, the message gets diluted. Was that a personal vendetta requiring a repeated slap across the face? There are so many reasons to celebrate and not forget what this institution meant to those in need. When the fourth candle is lit, and you realize that there are nine novenas in total, all the sidetracking began to take a toll on my endurance. Regarding surgical theater, did we really need to hear a doctor quip? Free theater, the best kind! This production begins with a musical prologue in the courtyard of St. John's in the Village, The audience is then escorted around the corner to the theater. We are encouraged to linger at old photos of the hospital through the years, cholera notices, and act up marches. At the end of this play, everyone travels outside to the AIDS memorial for a solemn moment of reflection. Novenas for a Lost Hospital is certainly a well-intentioned historical remembrance worthy of serious contemplation. As a theatrical event, however, Most sections and scenes are far too elongated. How many times do we need to see the choreographer dance? When this meditation hits the bullseye and makes a hugely pertinent point, the impact is very powerful. Without a charitable hospital which serves less fortunate, where do we go the next time there is an epidemic? Indeed, where do we go? The world premiere of Novenas for a Lost Hospital is being presented by Rattlestick Theatre through October 13th. When you attend as much theatre as I do, sometimes themes get repeated, and apparently September is a month to really rail about the patriarchy. Our next play was at the Tank, and it was called, with an exclamation point, Patriarchy. Tank Array, that's Tank Array, the Tank, get it? Tanqueray is a new monthly series at The Tank. Each show features new works by artists with the intention to lift up the voices of women, queer and trans artists, artists of color, differently abled artists, and anyone else who has some cabaret magic to make, but is usually not given the space to take risks and bite off more than they can chew. My first dip into The tank array is a new musical in development called Patriarchy. The description of this show piqued my interest. The four women justices of the Supreme Court are erudite, well-read, and punk as fuck. Apparently, an asteroid is barreling straight towards Earth. All of the male members of the court have jumped on a space plane to escape danger. The ladies have been left behind, and they are not happy campers. Time for oral arguments, jerks! Ella Rose Chari, one of the curators of this series... Conceived this piece with Rachel Flynn on book and Melissa Lusk as the co-songwriter. Our three current justices, Elena Kagan, Sonia Sotomayor, and Ruth Bader Ginsburg, are joined with Sandra Day O'Connor in this briefing designed to save the world from mass extinction. At the beginning of the stage reading, the creators informed that this was the first performance of this work in development. The idea is inspired. The ladies are pissed. The songs are without question heavily influenced by the punk rock aesthetic. I was instantly reminded of the awesomely titled book, Notorious RBG. Sherry Edelin's portrayal showed what potential this material has to really be a raging feminist nightmare. No one is going to need judgments after the apocalypse, at least for an appeals court, the ladies agree. How to save the earth, then? A trial is conducted. Even The Asteroid gets legal representation. The premise is fun, the anger out in the open. Songs have titles like We Push Back. The punk rock ditties were enjoyable. If Alexander Hamilton can rap, why can't these women raise some anarchistic hell? If this piece develops further, more songs will be needed to break up the longer dialogue sections. Additional character development would help as well. Sotomayor's knife sharpening was funny the first time, but she, like most of the justices, could use a few more edges. There's a great idea here, and I hope the creative team plays around with the possibilities. How about RBG starting the show in a hospital bed? She's watching the news. The asteroid is hours away from annihilating the planet. The male justices have abandoned the world they were sworn to protect. She rips off her monitoring devices and jumps up into an angry punk tune. Patriarchy is a very clever idea. Sharpen the arguments and I'll pay to see it again. Three more October Broadway openings to tell you about. The first one is The Lightning Thief, the Percy Jackson musical. I actually saw this one in New York during its national tour last year, and it's coming to Broadway for a 16-week engagement. You can read my review at www.theaterreviewsfrommyseat.com and just type in The Lightning Thief in the search box. Another play, starring Mary Louise Parker, which was commissioned by Lincoln Center Theater and had its world premiere in 2018, is called The Sound Inside. And lastly, Talking Heads frontman David Byrne has American Utopia, American Utopia is his seventh studio LP, and the show is said to blur the lines between gig and theater, poetry and dance. I loved his Imelda Marcos musical, which was called Here Lies Love. I hated the musical he did about Joan of Arc, so we'll see how this one turns out. And there's a whole new slew of shows on Broadway and previews already opening after October and a big, big, busy off-Broadway calendar. It really is quite an exceptional fall for theater in New York City. For my last review, I'd like to return to the Flea Theater and the Mac Wellman Festival called Perfect Catastrophes. This was the third play I saw, this one, The Invention of Tragedy. How to describe the oratorically dense, frequently hysterical, and mind-buzzingly creative the invention of tragedy? How does Shakespeare sound to a young child? Let there be a dragon of trees and washing without washcloths, bags, cats, wardrobes, bungle things, and other things, traps and twerps and words, and greater words of estuarial conviviality. My new favorite kind of conviviality, it turns out. Originally written in 2004 and having its world premiere now, Mack Wellman's exuberant mini-masterpiece is a refreshingly idiosyncratic theatrical experience. When you see as much theater as I do, there is a unique joy when confronted with something this complex and wacky. He is clearly reflecting on the dangers of groupthink and mob mentality, his chorus repeatedly intones and chop the chails off all cats. I was reminded of different clowns, the ones who chant, Lock her up. His chorus demonstrates in words and actions a mutual reinforcement of symbols and ideas and speak. I enforce you and you enforce me. When an each becomes an all, the all becomes an each. That is the invention of tragedy. After the hare, that is bunny hare, H-A-R-E, after the hare recites this analysis, the narrator cues yet another catastrophic cat reference, and there is a tragic pause, P-A-W-S. One particular member of the chorus, a very winning Drita Kabashi, well, however, she has her eyes wide open. She's a mischievous rebel who clearly isn't falling in line. The entire play is set in the auditorium of a parochial school. At one point, this sore thumb starts chugging church wine rather than obediently reciting her lines in formation with the others. She takes a stand to say, I am here to announce and proclaim a departure of all cats. Eventually, she will be challenged by the one who wields an axe. This is a play of ideas, not plot, but amusingly, the invention of tragedy does embrace all things felinekity. The narrator sits in an organ, scoring the action with ominous and simple chords. She drolly comments on the action, highlighting stage directions like, A pause of inappropriate dogginess. I was compelled to frequently watch Sarah Alice Scholl perform her role. She wrings so much subtle irony from her lines, Her facial expressions and body language were arguably even more entertaining. Our rebel is singled out right from the start of this play. The chorus says about her, This difference is a problem. Mr. Wellman further elaborates that, This difference is a problem for one and all, as we shall see the problem will not go away. This is a society which craves sameness and chop the chails off cats. If you have any capacity for critical thinking, the analogies to many current events are obvious and bracing, despite this play having been written in 2004. Surrounding the essential themes of this play, there are countless lines of exquisite gibberish. There were many of us in the audience delighting in the quirky verbiage. A big laugh greeted this enchantment. Goose ascending in tall aspect to please the St. Elmer's fire. Mr. Wellman is not simply being silly here and looks to bond with his listening audience. Here's a quote to remember. And yes, like you perhaps, I am inclined to fight windmills because I cannot say what it is I really want to say. It's not a big stretch to think about the invention of tragedy and today's bizarre groupthink alliances. Is this play any more incomprehensible than the current adoration society between fundamentalist evangelicals, serial sexual predators, and gun Americans? Megan Finn directed this stellar production. What happens on stage is no simple feat. The language is intricate, but this outstanding cast of young women makes it look effortless and fun it really comes across as a warped school play. Some admittedly will be baffled. It's like sitting in the middle of a Trump rally. You can understand the words individually. The imbecilic mob mentality, on the other hand, may seem elusive and repulsive. Theater that entertains this extravagantly while bearing its fangs so intelligently is a treat. Many, many decades from now, I hope this particularly horrific era will be embarrassing to a future state where differences are celebrated, and with more gentle words. Like Mr. Wellman, and I'm quoting him here, I like the quiet idea that rides imperceptibly through time and history, like a ripple on a pond. Embrace the different theatrically and pounce like a cat on this one. The Invention of Tragedy is part of the Flea Theater's festival of five plays called MacWellman Wellman, Perfect Catastrophes, running through November 1st. Thank you for listening to this episode of Theatre Reviews from My Seat. Next month, I'll discuss two more Mack Wellman plays in this festival, The Sandalwood Box and The Fez. Public Theater has a couple of plays I'm excited for. The Michaels by Richard Nelson, which is part of the Rhinebeck panorama he's doing. Previous play cycles included The Apple Family and The Gabriels. And a show that was on Broadway when I first started attending theater in the mid-70s. Actually, this was 1976. The play, For Colored Girls Who Have Considered Suicide When the Rainbow Is Enough. The Public Theater is going to this one on, and it's a show I just remember hearing about when I was very young, and I'm so looking forward to seeing what it has to say. If you have any comments or suggestions for a theater piece to be reviewed, you can send an email to seat at comcast.net. You can also sign up for email subscriptions to current reviews at www.theaterreviewsformyseat.com. Thanks again for listening and happy theater going.